Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, listeners, uh, imagine a vast circular prison. Okay, you with me? Yes. Okay. Now, you step inside and you'll find a curious arrangement of the cells because most of this enclosed space is exactly that. It's empty space. Uh, the cubicle cells line the circumference of the inner walls, uh, several stories worth, in fact, and their bars all face inward uh, toward a lone guard tower known as the Inspector's Lodge. Okay. Now, standing within your prison cell, you can't see any of your fellow cellmates. You can't see any of the other cells. All you can see is this tower. And you can't see the inspector that supposedly mans it due to uh, a mesh screen. But you know he's there. You know he's watching. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know he's referencing a detailed map of which prisoner occupies which cell. Mm -hmm. And you know that he listens in as well. But, of course, the inspector can only look or listen to one cell at any given moment, right? But you never know if his attention is turned to you. So you have to assume at all times that he might be listening to you. You have to avoid that type 2 error in cognition. It's the only way to deal with the endless uncertainty. It's safer to assume, right? And besides, uh, you know that prisoners are regularly moved to new cells based on good or bad behavior. So I see that you have had a look inside my house. Oh, is this how you have your house arranged? Yeah. Yeah. So, So you're the inspector? What makes it really easy to keep tabs on everybody. Yeah. So I think what you have just described is something called the panopticon. Yes. And we're going to talk about this today. We are going to look at how spaces can have the power to liberate, as we've talked about before with labyrinths, Mm -hmm. or they have the power to oppress. And when you think about prison and you think about prisoners, uh, you think about anxiety, loneliness, and vulnerability. And so this panopticon is really this idea of these concentric circles closing in on us. Yeah, and what's great about it is that it's not only this this wonderful and, and disturbing uh, to varying levels design mm-hmm. for how we might use a physical space to uh, to have this drastic effect on the human mind. But it also, uh, over the, the years, has been picked up as a philosophical idea, as a metaphor that we apply to government, to uh, Internet culture, uh, you name it. I mean, you do a search for Panopticon, you will find people using it just about every uh, way they possibly can to criticize a given uh, system of order, government, bureaucracy, etc. Well, probably one of the the oldest ways in which it's been linked is this metaphor of the the seeing eye of God, right? Ah. Uh, Particularly in Western culture, because when you're indoctrinated into Western culture, you're indoctrinated to this idea that there's this... uh, this powerful gaze and this powerful memory of a deity looking over all of us. Yeah. He knows what you've been doing. He knows when you've he been bad. He knows when you're awake. Yeah. Santa Claus and God are, are yeah. kind of the, the, kind of share the same space in, in the Western mindset. And, and you're right to, to, to your point, the idea of the inspector and the inspector's lodge and that tower at the center mm-hmm. of the panopticon <laughs> is very much the idea of a God, uh, but a, but a very, uh, non-personal god a god that's all up in your business but also you have you have no real clue as to what they look like what they are what their their uh, their ideas are regarding your fate in this uh, strange uh, strangely ordered prison well this is a vengeful god and mm-hmm. um, this is something that you know what came out of the mind of a english utilitarian philosopher by the name of jeremy bentham who unveiled this architectural marvel, these plans for this panopticon to the world. So as you said, you know, let's revisit that again. We're talking about two sets of concentric towers, one within the other, 
with cells lining the outer wall being visible to and subject to regulation from the watcher, the eye of God. Mm-hmm. And those people, they would live, they would eat, they would sleep and work in these cells in what they thought was constant surveillance. Right. Now, to give you a little background, uh, Jeremy Bentham lived uh, 1748 to 1832. Uh, again, he was a British philosopher and, and something of a political radical. Uh, he's mainly known for the uh, philosophy of utilitarianism, which elevates actions based on their relevant consequences to the overall happiness of everyone affected. And he had something of a, a hedonistic approach to happiness, defining it simply as a matter of experiencing pleasure and a lack of pain. Um, now, when it comes to his uh, panopticon, mm-hmm. uh, he his approach to it was that this is an overall good idea. He wasn't saying, I have a great uh, humanity-crushing concept I want to unveil in the world. Yeah. No, he was saying, look, prisons are a mess. We're in this. We're in the midst of, of, of overall attempts to uh, reform our prisons and make them more effective and make them less horrifying. So uh, here's one way we can do it. And we can make it more cost-effective uh, and, and overall just more effective as well. Right, because if you, if you have a couple of guards in a central tower watching over everyone, then you don't have guards that are going, you know, on the beat to every single cell and looking over, right? So you have less manpower that actually has to enforce this feeling that you're being surveilled. Yeah, you end up with four guards that you're uh, two, only two of which are, are actually paid because you have the the two guys, you know, one guy maybe walking around, you have one guy in the tower, and then you have fear and uncertainty, and you don't have to pay for those because those guys are are are, are summoned out of the very uh, uh, physicality of the structure. Yeah, and it's actually compounded this this, this fear um, by this idea of having those cells being illuminated, but the observation tower actually being dark, mm-hmm. so that the prisoners could be observed at all times, but they wouldn't be able to tell when they were being observed. And so the goal is for them to learn to act as if they were constantly under surveillance. And the idea is that once this uh, I guess you could call it self-discipline was instilled that prisoners could be released in, into society with the capacity to regulate their own behavior through paranoia, really. Yeah, really. And, and, and you know, sound to. yeah. And Bentham, I mean, he's again, he's not trying to be dastardly about this. He's sort of thinking it's just a way that we can uh, manage the prison problem and reform the prisoner via paranoia. Exactly. So originally he thought about this as a prison design, but he also thought it was, quote, applicable to any sort of establishment in which persons of any description are to be kept under inspection. So we're talking about insane asylums, poor houses, Mm -hmm. but this is where it gets into society, factories, schools and hospitals. Yeah, I mean, I, without without getting into the, the the fine details of it, you can see where that would that would make sense in, say, a hospital Mm -hmm. where you you want constant surveillance, more or less, of people's conditions, or at the very least, you want people to feel like they're under constant care and surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would make sense. And then, and, and obviously, with the school situation, but sometimes the, it, it feels like a, a school is very uh, similar to a prison or insane asylum, and you have to have that kind of order in place to make sure that everyone's doing right and, and obeying their the, the, the laws of the school, not cheating on every test, not skipping classes. The problem with this, and we'll get more into this uh, in a bit, is this inherent distrust, right? Because, uh, okay, you see it extended to prisons. But factories, schools, and hospitals, it's not necessarily just taking uh, the form of, hey, we're just going to surveil and make sure everything is okay. There's this idea that something is wrong. Someone somewhere is doing something wrong. Right, yeah, the whole system ends up uh, being predicated on guilt and, Mm -hmm. uh, and assumed guilt. 
All right, so I know what you're, you're, you're probably asking yourself. You're saying, all right, well, where's the Panopticon? Point to the Panopticon so I might see a picture of it. <laughs> uh, and certainly there's some wonderful sketches of it because uh, Bentham put a lot of uh, thought and effort into the designs. He worked with an architect. He was even taught in talks to see his design implemented uh, at one point, but the Panopticon was never built in his lifetime. In fact, no true Panopticon prison was ever built. In, mm-hmm. other, in other words, no one ever took his designs and said, all right, I'm going to build this, this thing that he designed. Uh, part of the problem here is that uh, by the time surveillance technology really caught up with his vision, you no longer need that specific architecture to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Like once you can actually wire every prison cell conceivably with video and audio, if you reach the point where you can do that, you don't need this giant uh, space with all this wasted empty space between the cells and the tower. You can just build a big, uh, you know, farm of cubes and then just wire it up, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge cost, and politicians were interested, but they weren't necessarily going to implement it. Yeah, and we see this all the time, even today. You know, you're always finding stuff showing up in your your feed, or your news feed, or your Facebook feed, where it's like some crazy design that's going to innovate the way that we travel, or do business, or live. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, you're not going to see those designs implemented. Those represent the extreme that, in, under the best of situations, will... Um, You'll see aspects of that implemented further down the chain, or at least will draw um, uh, inspiration and innovation in that direction. Right. But so it was never truly built, but it still influenced other prisons. Yes, and probably the the best example that we can we can find for this is uh, Cuba's uh, Presidio uh, Modelo, and this was built between 1926 and 1928, and it actually consists of five uh, Panopticon uh, buildings, uh, each designed to hold uh, 2,500 prisoners. So these are five buildings, uh, cells lining uh, the the inside of the the, the outer walls, mm-hmm. and then there's a tower in the center where the guards would be able to watch everyone, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it, it operated. It was functional. And uh, you actually saw some, some star prisoners there. Fidel Castro was a prisoner there during the rebellion. And, uh, but of course, then after his rise to power, you see the thing just stuffed with political prisoners, um, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, counter-revolutionaries, various enemies of the state. And uh, so the population quickly skyrockets to 6,000 inmates. Now, of course, the, that's the thing about prisons. If they're built to contain a certain number of, of people, um, if, if you overstuff them, you're going to overload any system. You're going to overload the, the, the wiring mm-hmm. of, of the prison. And that's exactly what happened. You, uh, you have overcrowding that leads to riots in 1961, and then it was permanently closed by the government in 1966. Today it's a museum, and I think there's a school there and also some, some offices. But for the, for the most part, you can, you can still find pictures of this online, and, and you can visit it if you're in Cuba. And it's, uh, it's really remarkable to look at because it it's the, the idea of the Panopticon uh, brought to physical life. I wanted to point out a quote by Architects, Designers, Planners for Social Responsibility. That's ADPSR. There was an essay on this about prisons and Panopticon. And the quote is, The best intention reformist designs have believed that more complete control of prisoners through design would be used only to further higher goals, such as religious awakenings and inner reflection. But in fact, control is an end in itself. And prisons just recreate the powerlessness of the member of poor and oppressed groups under even stricter rules than they face on the outside. Now, that was something interesting to ponder, uh, just in general. Not, you know, the Panopticon is really this idealized version of power and control, but the prison system as it exists right now, um, there are 
many people who would say that it doesn't work. It doesn't mm-hmm. reform. I agree. I agree. And that's that's definitely a subject for another episode. We could do a whole episode on the, the state of prisons and uh, and the mindset that goes into prison designs overall. Just in the philosophy that goes into it and how it's changed over time. Indeed. So well, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to look more at this panopticon from the perspective of Michel Foucault. All right, we're back. So, yes, uh, that was the best example of the panopticon uh, physically that we have. And, and you do see uh, panopticonic elements incorporated into various other prison designs. Uh, but uh, for the most part, where panopticon continues to have the most power today is as metaphor. That's right. And uh, that's why I wanted to bring up that quote by the ADSPR, because Michel Foucault is... Uh, a French philosopher who brought up the Panopticon as this idea of a metaphor of our society, that our disciplinary systems, our prisons in particular, with a Panopticon as the ideal type, they can be social failures. Yeah, Foucault's picture of uh, of modern disciplinary society breaks down into three primary techniques mm-hmm. that governmental powers use to control the masses. That's uh, hierarchical observation, normalizing judgment, mm-hmm. and examination. Mm-hmm. Now, and where this uh, panopticon enters into all that is that, according to Foucault, uh, power over people can, can be achieved merely by observing them. So it's like with the panopticon. But the deal is that uh, a single inspector would be impossible, uh, right, especially when you're talking about governmental power. So you need relays of inspectors. Uh, you need uh, all of them arranged in a hierarchy so that data can pass up and down the chain based on importance. And in all of this, Foucault focused in on society's modern transition from a, quote, culture of spectacle to a carceral or prison culture. Now, this gets into the idea that what happened when you broke the law in the old days and, like, really broke it, like, broke it hard, you would be made spectacle of. Right. And that's what he says. He says that, um, this is a quote for him, by the effect of backlighting, one can observe from the tower, standing out precisely against the light, the small captive shadows in the cells of the periphery. They are like so many cages, so many small theaters in which each actor is alone, perfectly individualized and constantly visible. So he's saying that this stage, the, the, the it's been reversed, that the audience is now in the cells mm. and the actor, the performer, is that that watch person looking over everybody else, well, and it still remains to spectacle, really? Yeah, the, a, a reversal of the old days where mm-hmm. everyone would be gathered around the, uh, the the guillotine or the headsman's block or the or the, the noose or what have you. So yeah, and within those three points that you had made, the hierarchical distribution of information, examination of that information, but also normalizing. This is a really important aspect of this, and this is what a lot of people run with when they look at our society today and look at the different ways that Panopticon can exist in different formats. So what Foucault has to say about normalizing, he says, hence the major effect of the Panopticon to induce in the inmate a state of conscious and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power. So to arrange things that the surveillance is permanent in its effects, even if it is discontinuous in its action. Again, this is sort of going back to what Bentham was really saying, is trying to instill that paranoia that you're being watched, even if you're not being watched. Yeah, they, they might be watching me, so therefore there's this always feeling, there's always this feeling that kind of evens out that they are watching me. Yeah, and uh, I'll just skip ahead in this quote. He says, in short, that the inmates should be caught up in a power situation of which they are themselves the bearer. 
<laughs> so they are the bearer of this, and it's this normalization of always being under the gaze. And this is what Foucault had a problem with because he said that, again, it's not just limited to prison design. It's a metaphor for all types of different social organizations and structures, schools, factories, and governments. Now, Purdue University's Dino Faluga breaks down the effects of panoptic organizational models into, into seven overall effects, and I think these are pretty interesting. This, again, is his view and his commentary on Foucault's uh, philosophy. Uh, number one, society becomes less willing to contest unjust laws. Like everyone's under the gaze mm-hmm. of the observer, and so therefore, even if the the laws seem to be becoming uh, becoming unjust, you're less likely to speak out of them because the gaze is is in theory on everyone. Uh, number two, rehabilitation rather than crueler and unusual punishment. Uh, so again, we talked about the, that it becomes more about the prison system rather than the spectacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, there's birth of an information society. You become de- more and more dependent on technology and record keeping. Uh, you have a bureaucracy of information in which people become numbers because, again, you're having to keep track of everybody and keep track of everything in this uh, panoptic system. Efficiency becomes more and more important, uh, even at the cost of exploitation or injustice. And finally, uh, specialization. Members of the workforce are organized into increasingly specialized fields so that we increasingly rely on other experts to complete tasks uh, that had previously been shared or common knowledge. So, the you know, we're talking the preparation of meats and other uh, food products, building construction, transportation, etc. His idea here is that with the Panopticon, it, it kind of breeds bureaucracy and bureaucracy is the uh, uh is the brick and mortar of the uh, the governmental uh panopticon the power panopticon uh that uh, that is society yeah and these these unwritten rules um and this idea that you're being surveilled this idea that it's all normal right you can start to look around and uh as people have done particularly at the drone situation mm-hmm. and say okay so what about the panopticon in modern society well start to think about how the pentagon has scores of communication satellites many of them for linking drones, ground troops, and imagery analysts there are some 7000 aerial drones compared with fewer than 50 a decade ago. Now consider that we increasingly have something called spy flies, which are equipped with sensors and micro cameras. And the fact that since September 11th, uh, the hours the Air Force devotes to flying missions for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance have gone up 3,100%. And every day the Air Force processes 1,500 hours of full motion videos and another 1,500 still images. A lot of it from the Predator drones and Reapers. So... That's one tiny aspect of surveilling power that exists in the world today. And, of course, uh, in, the, in the past few months, uh, the NSA has been all over the headlines for both its uh, domestic surveillance programs mm-hmm. and its uh, international surveillance programs. And, uh, and that, of course, is a really hot-button topic as well, with critics charging that the NSA not only infringes on our privacy, but lays the technological groundwork for a, a, a true police state and is really just part of a, an overall uh, panoptic um, structure on society. Yeah, and the problem there is that legislation cannot keep up with technological advances. Mm -hmm. So you have these sort of things being rolled out, and if they are challenged, then it takes a while to actually get that policy in place or that law in place to sort of balance out what sort of surveilling power is needed to run a government versus what just becomes overwhelming. Right. And and there's a huge debate about that right now. Um, The other thing is that in a way, every time you use the Internet, you are willingly 
submitting yourself to this panopticon, I mean, think about the humble cookie, right? Right. I mean, you're talking about uh, this tiny little omniscient tendril of the Internet that's gathering information about you. It's uh, recording your Internet browsing habits, and it's reporting them to a business that you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the corporation becomes... The, the tower, the, you know, the central tower with the watchman, and we are in those little cubicles surrounding it with all of our information being passed on. And I'm not trying to be dramatic about it. It's just if you really want to look at this system, this panoptic system, and look at it in the digital sphere, that's in essence how it's working. Yeah, like I think of browsing the Internet at work, which, I mean, in some places of work, that's that's already breaking the rules here. We do a lot of internet research, so it's, it's part of our job. Yeah. But, uh, but every time we, we conduct a search and go to a website here at work, there are like several layers of, uh, of, of potential uh, panopticonic thinking going on. First of all, uh, all right, the cookies that are uh, talking to my Facebook and to, mm-hmm. the, and to this site and this site, uh, you know, what, to, to, to what degree am I being watched there? This site I just went to, all right, all these different corporations just found out about it. Uh, Next, I'm using a work machine on a work inter- uh, internet connection. I know that they have certain uh, systems in place. I don't know the, the details of them or how they work, but I know that they, they can slash are, you know, observing what I'm doing on my machine. And, uh, and so it, it eventually becomes this uh, situation of you, you're, you feel like you're observed all the time. And what are you comfortable being observed doing? You know, you end up rationalizing, like, all right, I'm going to this website. I'm clearly going here for research. I have a good excuse when the uh, inspector leaves the tower and comes to get me. Like, like that's the kind right. of weird thinking you're, you're right. left in. Yeah, because you assume you're being watched. Yeah. Now, to add to this, um, our other technological tchotchkes, advancements, however you want to swing it, I'm thinking about Google Glass. Because mm-hmm. here some people would say, okay, here's this thing that is recording not only audio, but video of everything that's going around them. So now we have this idea of the panopticon as us gathering information about one another. And this does sound a little bit paranoid, but I think that the crux of this argument is if and when everyone is wearing Google Glass, then it becomes normalizing behavior to surveil people, even though you're not, you wouldn't call it surveilling, you know, your coworkers or your friends, mm-hmm. but you are gathering data about them. And essentially there is a third party that is using that data in some way and linking it up with other data. And we've talked about facial recognition systems or just of different layers that can be put together to put to create really a, a profile of a person and try to predict their behavior and what they're doing and buying and engaging in. Yeah, it's I mean it's already crazy where to the point where you put a, a photo up on Facebook. And like for instance I'll put a photo up of uh, of me, my wife and uh, and our child and the, the the Facebook will say, "Hey, look at the face of your wife. Do you want to identify this? We know who this is. Mm-hmm. Like Facebook knows who it is." And then they they point at the, the face of of our child, and, and and Facebook says, "Who is this? Tell us who this is. Tag them now." <laughs> and I want to say, "You don't you don't have him yet. Yeah, it's not wait. I'm sure he'll be on there. But uh, for now, he's uh, he's outside of your system. He's outside of your panopticon." Right. Well, in in some ways, he's outside of society, right? Because mm-hmm. if this is what we increasingly continue to do, we indoctrinate another one another via our virtual internet presence. 
then if you're not in that yet, then you are operating outside of society. Yeah, we've already uh, looked at some commentary uh, before about uh, how the newer generations, the the idea of private lives has, to varying degrees, eroded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just more, they're more comfortable, uh, by and large, with the idea of just living your life out there on the Internet where anyone can see it. Mm-hmm. And so it, I can imagine a day when, it becomes the norm that you're also contributing to this uh, uh, to, uh, this panopticon structure through the information that's streaming through your, your glasses or whatever kind of uh, personal computing device you're, you're wearing and then adding to the uh, surveillance information on the society you live in. Yeah, because I guess the flip side on this is that um, the more data that's being put out there, the more transparency could occur, right? So I think the, the positive spin on this would be, okay, so we're – we are collecting an immense amount of data about one another in society. But as a result, perhaps we would have less corruption. We would have less ne'er-do-wellism. Well, but Foucault would never say that. He no, would, no. He would never say that that's uh, that's what the answer at the end of the I know. Equation. I'm playing devil's advocate yeah. and saying someone on the other side of this argument could say, hey, there's, there's a worth in having this amount of data out there. And that there's no way that... Everyone, all the corporations in the world, all pulled together, could truly analyze the amount of data that comes out of it. That's well, one argument. Yeah. It, it all comes back to what you were saying earlier about the idea that the, the panopticon is the universe and the inspector in the tower, in the inspector's lodge, mm-hmm. is God. It, what kind of God do you, do you end up believing in? Do you believe in a benevolent God mm-hmm. who wants to keep an eye on us and make sure that we're safe in our comfy cells? Is it uh, just a... A complete, you know, benign God that is just sort of watching as we either live comfortably or are horribly beaten in ourselves, or is it an oppressive God who is there to make sure that we stay in this grim, dirty cell and uh, and are only moved according uh, to uh, his, her, its whims? So that's the problem: um, is that there's no one God in this situation, right? Depending on where you live and the, the kind of culture you live in and the, the politics surrounding it. You could have a benevolent God or you could have a vengeful God. All right. There you go. The uh, panopticon in a nutshell. Um, Before we uh, close out here, I'm going to call over the mail bot and we're going to do a quick listener mail. All right. This one comes to us from uh, Peter Cron and uh, who's a longtime listener uh, and uh, is always hitting us up with some cool links on our Facebook page and uh, writing us with some cool thoughts. And uh, here's just some some wonderful musings that he uh, presented to us. He says, hey there, got something I was thinking about today that maybe either of you two have thought about. Uh, I'm wondering about consciousness. So I was reading an article by Carl Zimmer, uh, which had me thinking about what it would be like if our massively connected world developed a real next-level consciousness that its uh, individual components were mostly unaware of. Would this supermind start probing itself like we do with our own brains? Would it at first be as clumsy as our own experiments before we understood our own biology a bit better? I'm thinking uh, that a probe might consist of something like these microscopic fast financial dealings on Wall Street that we've assumed uh, were traders using supercomputers to manipulate the market. Some have said they could be experiments, but by who? How else might our new mind test its own boundaries? It may just realize its consciousness when other similar entities arise from the ether of the Internet or communicate somehow, or it may coerce us into taking to space exploration, drive competition via heightened cybercrime and espionage between countries based on historical knowledge of how to fund these expensive ventures. I'm sure uh, there must be people already doing actual testing to see if this thing is alive. Man, that just makes me think of the whole conscious problem, like consciousness problem that we've talked about, Mm -hmm. and how much more difficult 
that would become, I think, right? Because yeah. you're adding another layer yeah, on You're adding that. a macro layer on top of our existing conundrum of consciousness. Um, but yeah. maybe that's the consciousness that would figure out our consciousness for us. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, you create this god you know in a way it, it ties in nicely with the idea of the panopticon if we if through something like this if we were able to either create or accidentally create or give birth to a super consciousness mm-hmm. that ends up more or less occupying that center uh tower in the panopticon uh you know what would the effects be and what would the, the nature of that entity be and how might it manipulate the prison to uh, maintain control or to maximize efficiency and could it beam out a holographic eye in the sky for us all just to look up and gaze <laughs> upon. <laughs> well, what is well, that a reference to? I just think that it yeah. should be, if, if there's going to be this sort of super consciousness, that it should be able to have these, a symbol of itself to beam out. Huh. Oh, no, I, it, well, oh, particularly well, if it's going to truly occupy the place of a panopticon. Well, that's like the Eye of Sauron, right? In uh, the Lord of the Rings that uh, floats over the, the, the tower in Mordor. That's right. The yeah. eye, it's really the Eye of Providence. Yeah, really. There's an, an, another excellent example of panopticon right there. All right, so hey, you want to reach out to us, you want to talk to us about the Panopticon, we would love to hear from you. I mean, specifically, what, what are your thoughts on the idea that we're living in a Panopticon now? Do you feel like this? Do you feel this uh, sort of fear and paranoia that you you may be observed at all times? And how does that affect your behavior? How does that affect your happiness level? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at all the usual places, uh, especially StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where all the podcast episodes are, the blog posts, the videos, etc. You can also find us on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Google+. Uh, we're Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. And hey, if any of you uh, are in Cuba or have been to Cuba and have actually visited uh, the prison we were talking about earlier, uh, let us know what that was like. Uh, I've seen the photos and they're amazing, but nothing beats a, a personal visit to something like that. And if you should be so bold as to craft an email that may or may not be read by others... Besides Robert and myself, you can do so by sending it to BelowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>